Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Center. It sounds very huge and elevated, and that's what it feels like. Like once you're working there, because rent is about much more than just friendship, love, and musical theater. It was about something that shook musical theater. People are becoming more and more comfortable with, you know, issue of people being different. I mean, we do it all. I mean, you know, we don't we don't back away from anything. Welcome to Broadway Bullet, Volume 306 for February 26th, 2009. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo. We got a lot of great stuff for you, but first I want to remind everybody to come on down for our weekly open mic every Sunday at 8 p.m. It's going to be in the Ha Comedy Club on 46th and 7th, and uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. It's meant for uh, theater composers and singers, a way for people to kind of intermingle and meet each other. So if you are a composer, come down and share your work. If you're a singer, come down and share your work. Maybe meet some composers on the rise. And if you're just interested in theater, come on down and listen to a lot of great music and uh, catch some future talent. Uh, it's going to be every week, but that's only so long as it's successful. So don't hold off and wait forever. Get on down and check it out. Uh, you can find more information on our website. Right in the top, there's a link for Open Mic, and you can find out all about the night there. All right, so we got a lot of stuff for you this episode. We've got Rumspringa, which is a new play off Broadway. We've got Kevin Dozier here to talk about his new CD, Love Wise. We've got the writer and director of The Love of Brothers, currently opening at the Theater for the New City. And we're going to have part two of our great interview with Louis St. Louis, where he shares a lot of his stories about the original Broadway production of Grease, as well as his work on the movie of that. So, a lot going on. I don't want to delay. Let's jump right on. On the boards. Rumspringa is the Amish tradition where the young folk get to abandon their religious teachings for a period of time. And it is also the inspiration for a new play entitled Rumspringa, which is just has opened off Broadway and runs through March 20. 8th, 28th, but it may be extended. And we have uh, playwright and director Peter Zinn. Hello. And actress uh, Mickey Sumner here with us to talk about the show. How are you doing? Thanks for having us. (laughs) So rumspringa. Rumspringa. Fun fun word. It is. It is. It's the kind of word you hear once or twice and you just, it sticks in your brain. You can't stop thinking about it, so. It means to run around. (laughs) It does. It, it sounds like you want to say <laughs> rum springer. Rum. It's a, it, so what about the? Now I, I'm assuming this has something to do with the Amish tradition. This, yes. this play here. Uh, a rum springer is a rite of passage for Amish adolescents, where they break away from the church and its teachings for a number of months, and sometimes it can be years, where they abandon all the the rules and they go off and smoke cigarettes and drink alcohol and take drugs and. Sometimes have sex. And this is college like for most people. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and they get to wear they get to wear uh, English clothing and do all that kind of stuff. So uh, and girls wear makeup and jewelry. 
the, the harlots. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but many of them will leave the church and then, they, then they'll go off and experience this life. And most of them come back. About 90% of them will return. But uh, there's that 10% that don't come back. That's just like my hometown in Montana. Everybody tried leaving, and they all come they back. They all come back. That's right. That's right. So, but our, you know, our main character, uh, played by Mickey here, uh, she is one of the ones who, 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 well, for a long period of time, doesn't come back. And mm-hmm. she goes off and... Uh, I'm a riverboat casino blackjack dealer. So, in Joliet, Illinois. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, you, and you just made a... a journey of your own recently. You're originally from England? I am. I'm English. And, and what made you decide to come over here to New York? I've been here four years. I went to school here, and then I decided to stay. Any <laughs> chance of going back? No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. Oh, I shouldn't tell my parents that, right. but yeah. Um, no, I like it here. It's good for me. So what was the inspiration around, what about uh, Rumspringa inspired you? Yeah, I just thought, this, I thought it was, fa- I mean, I, I, I've always been fascinated with Amish people. Like, I was kind of a weird kid. Like, my parents took me to visit <laughs> Amish people. And when I, you know, we went to an Amish town in Ohio. And I don't know. I saw that movie uh, Witness when I was really young. And I, I, was, I was just always drawn with that whole culture. And then when I learned that they actually, you know, participate in, in Rumspringas, I thought, man, well, that's fascinating to be, you know, to, to live your life without electricity and kind of live in this, you know, old world and then all of a sudden be able to participate in the modern day world, uh, to me is just fascinating. And the fact that they actually form these gatherings in cornfields late at night where they'll, you know, have these kind of hedonistic parties where they, you know, many of them will take drugs and, you know, go all out. I just, you know, I thought that was fascinating. And and uh, the more I, you know, I did research on this whole topic, I learned that, you know, the non-Amish people in these communities in Indiana will actually go to these Amish Rumspringa gatherings because they say that the Amish kids have the best parties. They have the wildest <laughs> parties, you know. And just this image of Amish kids, you know, jumping around in cornfields with their hats on, I just, to me, that was fascinating. And, and while the whole play isn't just about a Rumspringa, I think Rumspringa is more or less just the theme of the play. I mean, all of our characters, Characters. There's, uh, you know, four main characters in the play, and they all kind of break away from their their normal life for for one period of time. They they want to escape from the mold that they've been living in and uh, ex- see what it's like on the outside and 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 learn what can be lost or gained through that that kind of exploration. Um, our, our the 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 main role of the male role is uh, he's a 57 year old CFO of a software company in Orange County, and uh, he's on a flight. He commutes from um, he lives in Chicago, but he works in in Orange County, and he's on a a flight coming back from Orange County to Chicago, and he meets this uh, this surfer who's from Huntington Beach, who's going to Chicago for the very first time. And he's just thrilled, and he's going to visit a love interest who uh, is uh, Mickey's character, who is this ex-Amish blackjack dealer. Um, And this very charismatic surfer, in a sense, kind of charms and woos the CFO to come out with him on a night in Chicago. And they go out to the bars on Russian Division. And then they wind up, you know, finding Cecily, who's the who's Mickey's character. And then they ultimately end up going to Indiana to one of these large Rumspringa gatherings. Um, and you, you shouldn't say anymore. 
I shouldn't say anymore. <laughs> no. And from there, you know, Don't tell them that everything. sets the stage for for Rumspringa. So, Mickey, uh, are there certain elements about the character that you really identify with? Um, um, I think definitely um, leaving home, um, leaving your culture, and um, and setting up somewhere new. I think Cecily definitely has to go through that. I mean, hers is much more extreme. I was allowed to drink and smoke mm. and wear clothes and <laughs> <laughs> makeup and jewelry. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think it, it's always it's always strange to uproot and leave behind things that you're used to. I mean, things it, there are differences between England and America and yeah, there's a few. Yeah, that a accent's few. one of them. My accent. Uh, yeah. And she has to have a uh, an annoying Midwestern accent like <laughs> I have, you know, where it sounds like I'm talking through my nose. Pete's been training me. Yeah. So, you know, there's all kinds of words we've been having fun with. Participants, Participants. is one. Participants. And uh, what are some of the other ones? That you, a- anything. Anything. <laughs> anything. So she's been working on her Chicago accent. Uh, Off topic, but I have a question. How can we Americans accept all the Brits doing American accents, but the Brits really hate us doing their accents. That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> I think there are some amazing American actors yeah. who have I, great... Yeah. Gwyneth Paltrow yeah, has I an asked amazing you that. Yeah. English accent. Perfect. Who else? Well, I just asked you... I remember asking you, I asked you who you thought the best one was and you, you thought she was I think she's good. pretty much the best one. I've kind of forgot. She does do a lot of British stuff. I've actually yeah. kind of forgotten she's yeah. American. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, you know, Mickey. I'll, I'll be honest. She, her her American accent, and you know, specifically her Midwestern accent, which is not an easy accent to do. It's the worst accent there is. That's me. And and well, it's just true. And, well, and, it's also kind of it's also kind of homogenous as far as American accents go. Well, I that's mean, what people say. I mean, you, I've got one. I mean, you can tell I'm talking kind of like it sounds kind of weird the way I speak. I mean, you know, it's we we you know we speak through our we're very nasally, you know, and this it's is here. yeah, mm. it's specifically. A, well, I know you do voiceovers, so do you do you ch- transfer your voice when you do your voiceover? I don't. Work? I just talk the way I do now, <laughs> and it seems to work. I don't yeah. know what it is. I because mean, I you've got that like. Midwestern. Yeah, like. I'm the guy who like sits next to you in the bar, and you know, you, you know, we we just talk about things. You know, I mean, I don't do any kind of voices. You know, this is just all I do, and and that seems to work for me. But, you know, there's other guys that can do all these crazy accents and voices and stuff, and you know, and Mickey's ability to to adapt the the Midwestern accent is in, incredible because we'll be doing the play and going through rehearsals, and then all of a sudden she'll start. Talking like she's in a you know in a in a Dickens play or something, and I'm like, what do you, why does she sound like that? You know, so. Yeah, I am losing my English accent though. When I go home, people are like, "What is wrong with you?" <laughs> now, how many plays have you written? This is the only play I've written. So your first play. Yeah, I you know I. And you hit the jackpot off Broadway. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, it, the play was developed in. I've been working on the play for about five years, and. Um, it was developed in a workshop in Chicago, Victory Gardens Theater, which is a is a great theater in Chicago. And when I moved to New York, I, I brought the play to HB Studios and um, worked on it in Donna DiMatteo's advanced playwriting workshop. And um, from there, it just you know we some of the actors that work in that workshop got involved in it, and it, it then got selected for a, a reading series at Angelica Torn's. Monday Night Reading Series at Geraldine 
Page's Reading Salon. Uh, and from there, we were able to get interest from the Bleecker Street Theater, which uh, they've been wonderful. They've been incredibly supportive of the play. They're not the type of producers that step in and try and change the play. <laughs> and uh, it's, you know, it's just been a really, a really great experience. We've, we've had wonderful audiences. We had a great opening. And we've just had a lot of really, you know, supportive people. So, you know, of course, we appreciate the opportunity to talk to you guys. And I want to mention anybody who, who uh, comes to Bleecker Street Theater to see Rumspringa, which is at 8 p.m. on uh, Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays. If they mention Broadway Bullet, uh, we'll give them two tickets for the price of one. And tickets are $25. That's great. So that, that makes a ticket, like... Less than a movie here in New York. It does. It's probably the <laughs> cheapest deal on bro- uh, off Broadway. I'm gonna guess for an, an 8 p.m. show. So, and there's a late night show going on called Sailor Man. So, if you want to stick around and watch that show, it's at 10 o'clock. Uh, that's uh, kind of a live cartoon. Uh, um, it's very violent and very fun, but and it's very bloody. Very bloody. Uh, great show. Won the Fringe Festival Award. Uh, that's the late night show. So you can. You know, do a whole night of theater if you like, and I, they've got a, um, a, a special deal where you can buy uh, one ticket for both shows, uh, or you can see Rumspringa one night and come back and see Sailor Man another night. We'd certainly love you to come and do that. So, all right. Well, hopefully, people, you know, you know, t- you know, take all the drugs and alcohol and have a Rumspringa <laughs> of themselves <Right>. before <laughs> before coming to the show. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, Peter Zinn and Mickey Sumner, I thank you so much for coming down and, and talking about the show. And best of luck with its run. Well, thanks. And again, it's running as again, as you said, March 28th is when it's scheduled to run until, but you're expecting possibly to extend? Yeah, we've had a really good response, so we think we will probably extend, but we encourage folks to come down and see the show. Yes. Don't delay. It doesn't Don't extend delay. unless people are, <laughs> exactly. people are rumspringering exactly. down to the... <laughs> right, right. And uh, they can go to the website is www.amishrave.com. That's it. All right. Well, again, Peter's in, Mickey Sumner. Thanks so much and best of luck. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Bye. The Call Board. The producers of Rock of Ages announced the complete cast for Broadway's new smash hit musical this week. Constantine Maroulis, reprising his critically acclaimed role as Drew, is now joined by Broadway's best 1970s and 1980s period actors Amy Spangler as Sherry and James Carpinello as Stacey Jacks. You can find the links to everybody who's cast on our show notes for Volume 306. Also, from Arthur Lawrence, playwright, screenwriter, and director, he comes a mesmerizing book about theater, the art, the artist, the insider, the outsider, and the making of two of the greatest musicals of the American stage, West Side Story and Gypsy. It is a book profoundly enriched by the author's two loves, love for the theater and love for his partner of 52 years, Tom Hatcher, who shared and inspired every aspect of his life and work. The book is Arthur Lawrence, mainly on directing Gypsy, West Side Story, and other musicals, and a discussion of the book and career of Arthur Lawrence will be held at the 66th Street location of Barnes & Noble at 7.30 p.m. on March 24th. Mark your calendars. Listening Room. Kevin Dozier has been a successful cabaret singer in San Francisco for several years. 
and recently has started bringing his shows to New York with stints at Don't Tell Mamas and the Metropolitan Room. He's recently released a brand new CD called Love Wise, and that is not only what he's here to talk about here on the show. How are you doing, Kevin? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. All right, so before we kind of get talking a little bit about your cabaret career, um, tell us a little bit first about Love Wise. Well, Love Wise is a collection of songs mostly from the Great American Songbook. Um, there are quite a few musical numbers on here. The, the title song, Love Wise, was actually a song recorded by Marilyn May back in 1967. And uh, she was good enough to help me with the lyrics for it. So um, it's a, a gem. <laughs> <laughs> So is this your first CD that you've done? This is my first CD. So what was the impetus after 10 years of for cabaret performing to finally do this CD? You know, I really wanted or to... Or it's been, has it been 10 years or more? Yeah, it's been, then... it's been um, about 10 years. Mm -hmm. And um, I've, I've always wanted to do a CD. Um, I've always wanted to work with an arranger named Christopher Marlowe. Uh, he did all of the musical arrangements and was the musical director for Nancy Lamott for many, many years. And... So I dreamed of working with him, and um, through introductions from several friends, I was able to meet Chris. And dreams can come dreams true. Dreams can come true. <laughs> so uh, we did a whole series of shows together, and then he arranged and produced this CD, and I'm very proud of it. So performing, you know, doing the cabaret scene in uh, San Francisco for 10 years and, and now moving stuff over to New York, what would you say are the biggest differences in the, the cabaret scene between the left coast and here? <laughs> well, um, <laughs> the um, New York cabaret audiences are not as forgiving. Um, <laughs> they expect you to know your stuff. And, um, and there's a lot of uh, networking that, that happens here. The cabaret community in San Francisco is much smaller, so it's easier to meet everyone and get to know everyone. And it's much bigger here. There are more venues. So um, you have to do a lot more networking to get in and, and get to know the people here. Um, but they've been very welcoming to me in New York. So how does one go about building up a, a cabaret career out in San Francisco? Well, in San Francisco, it started with a vocal coach that I had that got me into the cabaret scene there. Um, I started going to a lot of open mic um, uh, events, and um, eventually that led to the San Francisco Cabaret Competition in 2003, where I was named Male Vocalist of the Year, and that really gave me a jump start in San Francisco. How large is the actual attending community of the cabaret scene in, in San Francisco? It's not very big. It's, it has dwindled, unfortunately, and there are only a couple venues left um, to perform in in San Francisco. So is it like fighting like tooth and nail to get on those? You're fighting tooth and nail for time. So <laughs> that's the reason a lot of people go to their um, – the open mic events are very well attended and because it's a good place to be seen and you can get a lot of performers up um, in one evening. Have you done any touring outside of, besides coming to New York and, and doing your things at the Metropolitan? No, area? no, I haven't. You know, I used to sing professionally, um, and I did a lot of touring then, um, but I also did a lot of studio work, so a lot of studio singing, jingles, backups, and uh, I stopped for, for quite a number of years. So San Francisco helped me get going again, but no touring yet. Well, before we continue, maybe we should take a listen to one of the songs off your brand new CD. Certainly. Uh, do you want to tell us anything about this first song we're going to be playing? Sure. This first song is Soon It's Gonna Rain. Um, it's from the musical The Fantastics. And when Christopher brought me this arrangement, I fell in love with the fact that it was a jazzy version of this song. Um, it's a little seductive. And um, so I hope you enjoy it. 
All right, let's take a listen. Hear how the wind begins to whisper. See how the leaves go streaming by. Smell how the velvet rain is falling. Out where the fields are warm and dry. Now is the time to run inside and stay. Now is the time to find a hideaway where we can play. Soon it's gonna rain. I can see it. Soon it's gonna rain, I can tell. Soon it's gonna rain. What are we gonna do? Soon it's gonna rain, I can feel it. Soon it's gonna rain, I can tell. Soon it's gonna rain. What'll we do with you? We'll find four limbs of a tree. We'll build four walls and a floor. We'll bind it over with leaves and duck inside to stay. Then we'll let it rain. We'll not feel it. Then we'll let it rain, rain pell-mell, and we'll not complain if it never stops at all. We'll live in love within our own four walls. We'll find four limbs of a tree. We'll build four walls and a floor. We'll bind it over with leaves and duck inside to stay. Then we'll let it rain. We'll not feel it. Then we'll let it rain, rain pell-mell, and we'll not complain if it never stops at all. We'll live in love within our walls. Happily, we'll live in love. No cares at all. Happily, we'll live in love within our castle. Fantastic. So, thank you. Uh, so, it was 2008. You made your New York debut. Is yep, right? 2008. Um, Don't tell Mama. Um, what very the, good to me there. What were the biggest specific challenges you had to do to make the New York audience aware of what you're doing and get them out to see your show? Well, again, it, it comes about it comes to getting the word out. So, um, I worked with um, a wonderful publicist, Susan L. Shulman, and she helped get the word out for me, um, and. Really, again, about networking, trying to get to open mic events here in the city, um, and trying to meet as many people as I could. Uh, I attended a lot of cabaret. I still attend a lot of cabaret. Um, it's a good way for me to meet people and um, try to get people to my shows. So, uh, in terms of the getting the word out, what are there are there certain like websites or venues that are good for cabaret singers to really utilize? Mm -hmm. Well, there's um, Cabaret Hotline Online, um, which is a good one. 
Um, there, I've been using Facebook a lot. Um, <laughs> Facebook's great for you. Yeah, yeah so I've, I've become uh, a big fan of Facebook. Um, MySpace, um, YouTube has been really good. Um, so I have some videos from my shows up on YouTube.com. Um, so that's been good. All right. In the 10 years you've been doing this, you know, and in the past couple of years with the explosion of social media, do you think, you know, cabaret as well as other like more traditionally real niche, small audience, you know, oriented genres might see a little bit more of a, a rebirth with more accessibility for the I, general public to see what it is that you and other artists are doing? Yeah, I think we're seeing some of that. Um, I, I get the most interesting emails from people all over the world that catch my YouTube videos or find my website. Um, and I find that fascinating to me that, you know, somebody in, <laughs> in China is listening to my music. It's, it's an exciting thing, actually. Do they buy the CDs? <laughs> <laughs> when, when, when did Lovewise come out, by the way? Um, Lovewise came out in, on January 15th. Oh, so it's brand new. It's brand new. Um, it's out on iTunes, Amazon.com. Um, people can buy it from my site. Um, it's at Barnes & Noble in New York. Um, so it's very exciting for me. <laughs> All right, well, let's play another song from the CD. You want to tell us a little bit about this next one we're playing? Sure. This, this song is written by two New York songwriters, Tom Anderson and Ian Herman. Um, I discovered Tom Anderson um, out at a cabaret um, one night and heard him sing and went to his website and listened to all of his music. And this song is called Before We Say Goodbye, and I just think it's absolutely beautiful. It's a great way for me to close my shows. All right, let's take a listen. Before we say goodbye There's one thing you should know Your company enraptures me And I'll miss it so
before we say goodbye. All right, so the Lovewise CD, it's, uh, as you said, the Great American Songbook Collection. That's a real big, broad term. <laughs> it is. How is, that def- how is that term defined in your mind? Well, um, I guess standards is what I'm, I'm thinking more of. Um, it's, for me, it's the, I wanted to create a CD that people could put on when they're at dinner and listen all the way through. Um, I, I think the, um, the arrangements are, are lush and... Um, I'm not sure how to describe it. Um, we've got a great band on it, um, so that was that was a big accomplishment for me to get um, some great musicians in. We used a lot of Broadway um, musicians for the CD. How long was the recording um, process for Lovewise? Um, it took us about two and a half weeks in the studio, mostly with the musicians. Um, my vocal parts took about two days, um, and then we had um, several months of engineering time, actually mixing and um, and final production. Mm-hmm. All right, so uh, what, what, what's the last parting shot you'd like to get out here on the on the CD? Well, I hope people listen to it. <laughs> uh, um, and uh, they can visit my website, uh, www.kevindozier.com, and the CD's called Lovewise, and I hope people enjoy it. Yeah, and any live dates coming up anytime soon? I will have some dates coming up in May, but the dates aren't set yet. So Chad, the website, I'm so, assuming, will also have that information. Yes, all that information's on my website. All right. Well, Kevin Dozier, thanks so much for stopping down, and best of luck with your new CD, Love Wise, and best of luck in your continuing career. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate it. The Producer's Perspective. Hi, everybody. It's Ken Davenport from theproducersperspective.com. Oscar Sunday was just a few days ago, so I still have my mind on the movies. And I picked up a recent issue of Variety, and it had listed the top 250 grossing films in the U.S. in 2008. So we're going to go through some of the top 10. I'm going to read them to you. You'll have to imagine that you're flipping through the magazine. Here are, the, again, the top 10 grossing films in the U.S. Dark Knight, Iron Man, Indiana Jones, Hancock, WALL-E, Kung Fu Panda, Madagascar, Twilight, Quantum of Solace, and Horton Hears a Who. So as a producer or someone who develops entertainment, it's your job to always identify with what audiences are desiring, what they want, what they are paying money for, especially in this climate, right? Well, let's, so I look at these top 10 and what, what can we deduce from them? Well, of those top 10, every single one of those films, the biggest blockbusters of 08, is a fantasy. And in every single one of those films, the main character is one, male, and two, he possesses superhuman abilities or isn't even human. Now, a lot of you Twilight fans are going, but but the main character in Twilight is female, is female. I know people have already told me this, so I've been pitching this argument to you on the street. But I would argue that the vampire is the guy that gets the most attention. Now, again, that's the top, the biggest films of last year, all fantasies and all have these sort of superhuman beings at their focus. The regular people films, the Junos, they don't start to appear on the list until the next 10. And I think that's a very interesting trend. 
that shows you what film audiences are, are clamoring to see. So the natural reaction would be to this, if you want to make a lot of money in the movies, you produce a superhero-type fantasy with a male lead, right? Well, yes and no. Remember, these are gross sales, not net, not after expenses. So sure, Dark Knight took in $531 million domestically, but it cost $185 million to make. It's a profit of $346 million, or 187% domestically. We're going to leave all the foreign out of this for now. Juno, our darling number 18 on the list, took in $112 million domestically at an initial budget of only $6.5 million. That's a profit of $105.5 million, or 1,623%. So one of those movies made a lot of cash. Another one made a lot of profit. So looking at the Broadway productions right now and translating this to our industry, ask yourself the same questions. Which would you rather have running, Shrek or In the Heights? For our next podcast, we'll look at the top 10 grossing Broadway shows of 2008 and see if we can find similar trends and if the same rules apply. Until then, I'm Ken Davenport at theproducersperspective.com. On the Boards. When a relationship is based on taboos, can there be something more there than many people might think? That's one of many questions that a new play, The Love of Brothers, which is opening on March 5th at a theater for the New City, asks. We have got playwright actor Mario Golden here, as well as the director, Andreas Roberts, to talk about the show. How are you guys doing? Fine, Fine, thank you. you. It came up more of an S than a Z when I said your name, I think. My z. No, it's it's a. Z. <laughs> <laughs> so you want to introduce yourselves quickly so they can connect your voice with your name. Yes, I'm. My name is Mario Golden, and I am a playwright and actor, and author of this play, The Love of Brothers. Yes, and I'm Andreas Roberts. I'm the director of the same play. <laughs> So, first off, I guess, uh, tell us a little bit about the show itself, what it, what it's about and, and such. Okay. Uh, it's the story of two brothers uh, who were raised in Mexico City, and they were brought to the U.S. by their parents. They come from a family with a lot of money. The parents have died, and one of them has AIDS. And he informs his brother that he's decided to stop painting. He's a successful painter and also to stop the medication that's saving his life. And at which point his younger brother, who is um, a budding writer, and his life is really not going anywhere, freaks out and uh, doesn't know what to do. He wants his brother alive because it's his his only connection to the world. And uh, he uh, tries to dissuade him and convince him to go back to his treatment, but his brother won't do it, and um, so he resorts to seducing him. (laughs) And a whole uh, kind of worms opens up in in that dynamic, uh, having to do with the past in in Mexico, what happened to them as children, and having to confront that together in order to heal their past. And you are from Mexico yourself, correct? I'm from Mexico City, yeah. (laughs) So uh, how much of the culture of Mexico is also in the show? Um, Obviously, it's a play about relationships, and that's kind of, you know, universal in a lot of ways. But I'm curious how much of the specific Mexican culture you bring into the show. 
Um, it's not that much because uh, that's an, that's one of the interesting issues in the play that these two characters are more assimilated to American culture and also to uh, European culture. They've traveled a lot, and so their identification is more with that. But there's a longing in them, especially with a younger brother, to return, to go back, to reconnect. To um, you know, he thinks about these things. He he writes about them and. Uh, but somehow there's a block there, and the block has to do with what happened in their personal history. It's a kind of inner homelessness. <laughs> now, Andreas, you've been involved with the show for almost as long as the show has been being developed, correct? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I, I'm very intrigued by the story, and I love the story too, because it's, uh, it's so claustrophobic. These two guys, they decide to really close close up and go in this apartment and go through this just by two and nobody can come in and uh, in the details of the show you you always change your perspective then you think oh yo this brother is really insane and then they said no no the other one is in fact the <laughs> one and then and then they they find out this this terrible secret in their family story and then suddenly they both are in a way healed or there's something happening which is not expected. And I, I like this on the story. It's very unusual, very unusual. So how did the two of you end up meeting or getting together to work on this project? Andres, you're German, uh, Mario, you're Mexican, and you're here in New York, <laughs> the melting pot of like a thousand cultures. So it, it, I was part of a production as a co-director and Mario was um, a cast member. So uh, we, we met each other and... Yeah, this was uh, three, four years, four and a half years ago. Yes, and then... Yeah, this. so, to, you know, we started working together yeah. and developed a relationship. Yeah. And then when I started writing this play, um, I wanted to do readings. And, you know, Andres is a great director, so, you know, I invited him to take part in this, and um, it's developed yes. this way. One of the things you can do in New York much better than in Germany is getting in contact with playwrights. <laughs> it's really much easier here. Really? How many, how many German playwrights are there? Um, a lot, <laughs> but normally the German playwrights, uh, they work together with the publisher, not with the director. It's another system. So here they work together with the director, and it's more about developing a play, and I like that. It's unusual for me. So, so what have been some of both of your highlights working here in the New York theater scenes versus maybe what you're familiar with from, from your respective origins? Um, for me, I, I, you know, it's <laughs> a big I, question. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate very much that New York is uh, is a, a cultural center, and that there are so many creative people here that just nurture uh, artists. You know, nurture each other. And and um, I moved here from San Francisco. I, I was in San Francisco before. And I wanted to pursue acting and, and writing seriously. And it has been just, I mean, it's a tough place. It's a very tough place to to be part of this business. But it's wonderful because of the support that that people offer everywhere. You know, I'm a member of the um, Puerto Rican Traveling Unit Playwrights Unit, the Professional Playwrights Unit there. And the support that I've had there has been unbelievable. Um, you know, writing and, and, and also as an artist in general and with all the organizations that, I'm, that I've networked with. It's, it's wonderful for me. I, lo I love being here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Yes, I mean, <laughs> me too. <laughs> I think I, I think on on a on a human level, it's more warmth here and more support and more openness to discover new things, and that lacks. On the other side, you have this political social thing here that there's no support for the arts really. So you you always come together with people who make it happen against this obstacle. And that makes very strong, very strong commitments and very strong work possible. And that is different. In Germany, there's a lot of support for the arts and everybody's a little bit like comfortable with it. Mm -hmm. And yes, and when not today, we do it tomorrow, you know. So this is different here. And I like this. I like the um, urgency here. Would a show with these kind of like, so, so to speak, dangerous themes be, you know, as readily produced over in Germany or? In, in that comfortable climate, as you <clears throat> yeah, it's the 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 <laughs> isn't the society itself is not so conservative, it's not so religious based, or they don't have so much things, but they are also not so um, heart driven. They are more like into experimental theater, and you can do everything, but. Maybe not too much nakedness, but that's mm -hmm. it then. And But it's a delicate theme, so you need an audience for this. And this is maybe the problem in Germany. You need an audience. Who wants to see a show about two gay brothers who have this kind of uh, struggle? A normal audience? Maybe. Mm -hmm. But here you have a, a broader interest on these kind of things. I think this is unique on New York also. Mm -hmm. Hey Mario, uh, uh -huh. now you said you're originally from Mexico City. How long have yeah. you been away from, from there? Uh, well, my family moved here when I was, uh, let's see, that was 30, no, 30 years ago, yeah. Oh, so it's been quite a while. Since it's been quite a while. The last time I was back in Mexico was 2001, yeah. What is the arts and cultural scene like there in Mexico City? Do you, do you have enough of a memory of that? or? Yes, it's, I mean, it's something you don't necessarily hear about a lot of arts and culture yeah. coming out of Mexico, but I'm sure there's yeah. a lot of it. It's for Americans, I think we're very Eurocentric. Yeah, and, <laughs> and, and what happens like you know south of the equator doesn't seem to be on our radar as much. So I'm just kind of really curious about what the scene, yeah. the theatrical and the art scene is like down there. It's it's extremely rich, extremely rich, and and there, there's so much going on. I mean, I, I grew up going to the theater all the time in Mexico, and you know, I mean, there's all kinds of, of things going on. Mexico City is a huge city, so there's so much going on. And, uh, you know, even with economic crises that are endless, because there's always a crisis, an economic crisis in Mexico, <laughs> um, it keeps going and people are Wouldn't very... The, the news would probably be economic stability, right? Yeah, that, yeah definitely. <laughs> that would exactly. be very scary. That's so scary. <laughs> yeah, it's always the, crisis, the crisis, the next crisis. <laughs> Every year there's a crisis. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's wonderful. It's, it's very stimulating and... You know, what I love about it is the history and, and the richness of the culture is very imaginative. It's, it's full of, of, of surrealism. Uh, there are many themes that are important um, to me in Mexican culture that, for example, are part of this, of this play. The way we deal with death, for example, in Mexico. Uh, it's ingrained in us, you know. Uh, we embrace it. We are curious about it. We love it. We laugh about it. We eat it. The little skulls and they have the dead. You know what I mean? It's 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 so pervasive in the culture that it, it kind of infuses everything that we do. 
And that's part of the play, too. Like I was mentioning, you know, the brothers basically are dealing with impending death. Mm-hmm. You know, what do you, why do you suppose, when, especially when America has such a large Hispanic population, do you, do you have any ideas of why you think we're so myopic when it comes to we just kind of tend to ignore culturally, I think, a lot of like said, what's happening south of the equator and we're very focused on Europe. Do you have any insights as to you think why we tend to just ignore that huge portion of the population? Or, or am I wrong in thinking that, mm-hmm. that in that my perception that we're ignoring a lot of that culture? Uh, um, you know, I, I think that's changing. I think, I think it has a lot to do with, with the history of um, the United States and, and these other countries uh, south of the border. Um, it's it's uh, there's many there's many um, uh, there's many differences. You know, it, uh, there's a class difference generally speaking. Um, um, you know, culturally, there's a, there's a kind of misunderstanding, I think, and the way that cultures have attempted to merge or, or approach each other. I think it's, it's part of the mix of, uh, of what's happening globally, really. You know, I think the, the peoples of the world are coming together more and more slowly, and in this, there are clashes and there are conflicts and misunderstandings. And you know, in Europe, this is also happening with 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 other cultures. You know, so it's interesting. I, I think it is changing, and I think that's wonderful. I think that uh, the more openness there is to understand each other, the the better off we'll be. All right. So this show is uh, the Love of Brothers. It's playing at the theater for the New City from March fifth to the 29th. Um, and what's the best website for people to go to to get more information? Uh, the theater's website, which is www.theaterforthenewcity.net. All right. And uh, Mario Golden and Andreas Rodets. Roberts. Roberts. Oh, <laughs> you know, I had it at the beginning, and then I went with like, I'm going to have to. The, the, this B looks very much like an, a D on the sheet. Really? Sorry, you're Andreas Roberts. Yeah. And thank you so much for stopping by and discussing the show. And thanks, thanks Michael. Thank you everybody. so much, Michael. Come see it, yes. Hi. Up close. Louis St. Louis was on the episode last week talking about Jesus Christ Superstar Gospel that he arranged. But this guy's got a lot of great stories, and I and we had a jam-packed episode last week. So we're continuing with that interview now with a few more interesting stories. How are you doing, Louis? I'm good. Well, obviously, the first thing we want to start talking <laughs> about is you wrote Sandy for John Travolta I in did. Greece. Yeah. And I understand there's kind of like an interesting uh, story behind how that all came to pass for I you. sort of yeah I sort of, I cherish that story above almost all because it is the true show business right time right place story uh, absolutely as though it had been designed that way I, I had gone out to do I, as original musical director on Greece in 1972 so I, I had some legend with that and um I was only asked to come out and do dance arrangements for Pat Birch. So I happily trotted out to L.A. And I was there about three weeks, and suddenly a series of events uh, occurred. And um, obviously the person who had the music directorship of the movie uh, provoked the ire of someone. (laughs) That's all I'm going to say in terms of naming (laughs) players. 
could meet me for lunch or dinner, and I will divulge all. Uh, <laughs> I got a call from the uh, production manager uh, at about 8.30 in the morning, and he said, can you come to come to the offices immediately? And I said, oh, my God, three weeks, I'm fired. Or, no, you're not fired. Just get dressed and get over here. And uh, I, I, went, I went over, and uh, they handed me a, a little cardboard box with the uh, some 24-track tapes and some various and sundry 7-inch tapes and some cassettes. And he said, well, I guess you're in the right time at the right place. The movie's yours. And I said, the movie's mine? He said, yes, you're the new music director of the movie. And therefore, you become the producer on the album also. Uh, I ended up producing 17 of the 22 tracks. And, it uh, sold a couple of copies, too. It sold a few. Listen, if I would have had the deal on the first Grease movie that I had on the second Grease movie, I would own all of you. You're admitting to the second Grease movie? Yeah, of course. <laughs> there was oh, some I'm good not, I'm I actually sorry. love the second Grease movie. You know something? I'm not one of those who will play that game with anybody. I admit to every project I've ever done, including Truckload. <laughs> I'm bringing you a truckload of sweet loving kisses. Show tastes delicious. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know, it all fits in somewhere. You don't know till later on, but... Uh, I wrote some good songs. I still have people who stop me, girls particularly, say, oh, I love Who's That Guy? Uh, you know, it has a big cult following on the um, internet. Huge uh, cult. Anyway, all right. Don't look at me so disinterested. <laughs> I loved it. You know, I, I, I got to give the movie another shot. I actually, I loved it when I was a kid. It's when the okay. When came out, I loved it. Yeah, it's, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's not Grease 1, okay? But it's Grease 2. Uh, anyway, uh, okay, so... Uh, we get into me now working as music director on the film, and Olivia made a deal to bring in John Farrar, her producer, who, with whom she had won uh, a lot of Grammys, and he wrote her Hopelessly Devoted, and he wrote John and Olivia, uh, uh, Sandy and Danny, uh, you're the one that I want. So I'm sitting in a trailer one day with Pat Birch and Alan Carr, and they're divulging to me that uh, John was now whining that Olivia had her own new song, and I don't have a new song, and I'm not singing that drive-in movie song. I want a new song. And another one of those revelatory moments, I thought, girl name songs, 50s. My first girlfriend's name was Sandy. Oops, bingo. Sherry baby. Hey, hey, Paula. Uh, uh, Gloria. Uh, I said, well, maybe he should have a song named Sandy. And Alan said, well, maybe you should go back to the hotel and write it. It's 3 o'clock. You're, th you're through for the day. I said, well, I think I'll just do that. So I got in the car, and I was literally under the Paramount Arches. And I stopped, and I said—I had to stop because there was a light there. And I, I said to myself, stranded at the drive-in, branded a fool. What will they say? Monday at school. Mm -hmm. Light changes. I turn on the Santa Monica Boulevard. I take out the tape recorder. I'm taping it in the car, hoping up the LAPD don't stop me. I get back to the Sunset Marquee Hotel. I throw my bags down. I go to the piano. Uh, and I wrote the song in 15 minutes. But I thought, I'm not going to get all these lyrics. So I called uh, 
a guy from Shanana that I'd become friends with on the movie, Scott Simon. I said, you've got to come over and finish this with me. If I'd have just had a little bit more, more wherewithal, all those royalties would have been mine. <laughs> but there again is another case where I don't regret that. That was what I was doing at the moment. The Harlettes were in the suite above me. We finished writing it that night. They came down. They sang some backups for me. I took the CD. Uh, no, we didn't do CD demos then. <laughs> Oops. Uh, I took the cassette. Remember this cassettes? Is not Back to the Future? This is yeah, right. Time you actually watched the movie now, went back in time. Exactly. And said you wrote it. And... Uh, I, took, I took the demo over to Alan at 7.30 the next morning at his house. And I thought, my God, I'm playing this for him. And I played it for him on the piano, and the fire is crackling, and that's the house that Ingrid Bergman lived in. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm a big whore for all that stuff. I love all that history. And uh, 11 o'clock, I played it for my dearest friend to this day, Bill Oakes, who was the line producer, who, by the way, was married to Yvonne Alleman, la, 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 superstar. Mm-hmm. And... Um, one o'clock, uh, we played it for Robert Stigwin on the phone. Two o'clock, we played it for John. And at four o'clock, the song was mine. And three days later, I got a check for it. And that Sunday, I went out and I bought a new car. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I called the guy in Redondo Beach. I said, I got one day to buy a car. Do you have this car with this interior and a moonroof? He said, yes. And I said, I'm coming out there to buy it. I picked it up the following Wednesday and very proudly drove it onto the Paramount lot. And I stayed up till 6 in the morning when they shot Sandy because Bill had said to me, they'll never replace this song. This is a $700,000 shoot. <laughs> and Randall Kleiser, the director, was so cool. I got to the set about 6.30 that night and he said, I'm going to show you something I want to overlay that I want to do while we film it instead of doing it as an optical afterwards. And he showed me the the cartoon with the hot dog and the bun. Uh And he said, if you really hate it, I won't do it. And I said, oh, yeah, Randall, sure. If I really hate it, you won't do it. Mm -hmm. And he showed it to me, and I said, it's absolutely brilliant. And uh, at 7.30 that morning, I went back home and went to bed. I knew it was my song. (laughs) So that's really a right time, right place show business story. Well, you know... There's a lot of questions for Greece has been revived again, of course, recently and yeah. other things. It, it's a long-standing debate, especially with community theaters, that when they get to do the show Grease, there are tons of people disappointed that it doesn't have hopelessly devoted it to you. It does now. And you're the one that I want. Well, and, oh. But, yeah, this is 10 years ago. I mean, oh. Well, you know what? You may be right, though. I don't know, like in stock or, you know, in the provinces, as they say, but, if they get to use those. You know, I know in every revival, uh, from the time... Not the one that Rosie O'Donnell was in, because Jim Jacobs, well, I can tell this. I mean, I, I just think Jim never forgave me for that song. I don't know why. It's not like Jim hasn't recouped a, <laughs> shall we say, bountiful amount from this show. Come on. Uh, but I think it, it just stuck in his craw, you know. Uh, Any time that I've ever run into him over the years, it was always very strange between us. I mean, come on, people. I was the 21st music director interviewed for the original Grease on Broadway. I never found out till last year that Barry Manilow was in that office just days before me. <laughs> but they didn't, they couldn't connect with anybody. And a, a producer named Bruce Stark, with whom I had done a show called Soon, critics said Soon came too late. <laughs> Actually, that was a show that had Richard Gere, uh, Lita Galloway, 
Bonnie and uh, uh, Marta Heflin, who was Van Heflin's niece, Nell Carter, Joe Smith from The Love and Spoonful. I mean, it was extraordinary. Oh, uh, Barry Bostwick. Um, so I, I got a call. I'd come back from the Bernstein Mass. I was a soloist in the Bernstein's Mass. So I was feeling very high and mighty. Uh, actually, I got that. Do you mind me telling you all this? <laughs> that was great. <laughs> well, that's why we're here. <laughs> Show business, my life. I was auditioning for Judas in the original company of Superstar, the Tom O'Horgan version. I auditioned 12 times. At the same time, around the eighth or ninth time, I was auditioning for the Bernstein Mass. And uh, I went to the 12th audition. I was getting money from equity at that point. Uh, Tom Horgan said, I, I think that you should be auditioning for Herod. I don't know how we missed that, but there seems to be some gleam in your eye. Would you come back? And I said, yes. Yeah. So I went to the West Village. I bought a caftan. I bought some wedgie sandals, and I bought an Ethiopian skull cap. And I went into the Schubert Theater, and there's a, there's a men's room right there when you go in backstage. And I went and I changed. I came out in my caftan drag, and they were hysterical. And it was all very fabulous. But the next day, I was having my call back for Maestro Bernstein, and I got it on the spot. So who knows if we would even be talking about Jesus Christ Superstar Gospel at this point or, you know, what we would be talking about had that not happened. Because when I came back I, three days later, I had my interview for Greece and I heard four songs. By the time they got to Freddie, My Love, I was on the floor sitting with Jim and Warren. And I said, you have to give me this show. I know these people. I know what to do. The reason I brought all that up was is because there were a bunch of chicken scratch lead sheets. Mm -hmm that I, I turned into magic musically. I, I'm sorry if I have to toot my own horn, but I did. Because all of those vocal parts that you hear, somebody recently, oh, about, how many years ago it was when Tommy Toon did Miss America? Um, yeah. 10 years ago, yeah. and they were using Grease uh, stuff for the contestants. Somebody was sitting with me and said, so you get royalties for that. I said, no, I don't. You don't get a royalty for arranging a song that sits inside of a, a Broadway score. But it certainly was good for me. Uh, anyway, I'm, I'm rattling on. What were you talking about, Sandy? Right? <laughs> well, kind of in this whole thing, I was curious. I mean, what was the politics behind? Why weren't the original composers asked to write the new songs for the? <laughs> I mean, that's ultimately uh, what it boils down to. That you know. I think that movie people, as they're called. Uh, you know, had a different point of view towards it at that time. Stigwood, being a music maven all of his career, had a real definitive point of view about how this score should be lifted up, if you will, and made more pop accessible. So what the deal became was it was like a Chinese menu and an A and B list. For every new song, there had to be something from the original score, and it had to balance out. In the background of the movie, on the original soundtrack, you can hear Rock and Roll Party Queen and Mooning, which are not used in the movie, but that's me singing them. And then I sent a copy to Jim Canning and one to Walter Bobby when the soundtrack came out. And I said, now here, guys, this is how these songs should have been sung. And they didn't think it was funny. <laughs> I thought it was hysterical. The best was sending it to, to Sandy in Detroit, my girlfriend, though. That was really great. That was wonderful. Who's that, whose name actually was Alexandra before that was ever popular. Anyway, so much for girls. Ah, hello. Hello, Broadway. Hello, America. <laughs> well, one thing we're going to play with uh, this episode, maybe you want to talk a little bit about it, is I know you got a brand new song you're trying to pitch. And I am trying, trying to, to pitch this song. This is a finished recording uh, called We Gotta Go Green. 
And uh, every other day I see something still on TV, so I know that this is not an old idea, although I'm, I made this, this recording almost a year ago, sort of. Uh, <laughs> it's Alton uh, White, uh, who was just recently in Color Purple singing the lead. He was also uh, Miss Saigon, wasn't he? Alton, yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, also in Smokey Joe's yeah. Cafe, which I did for five years. Um, it, uh, and the Convent Avenue Baptist Children's Choir, which just really touches my heart. Uh, it's a plea for green. Uh, I tried to get it uh, for the gore. Uh, what's, what was that movie called? Oh, the, Inconvenient yeah. Truth. Uh, but Melissa was in there already. Dog on it. Uh, <laughs> I think it's a really wonderful song. It, it was a song that was suggested to me by someone, and I worked really hard on this. And so I'm, I would like to donate this to a, to a cause. I, I notice Volkswagen uses green in their commercials right now. I, I hear, uh, you know, the Obama uh, uh, plea for going green, in, in, you know, from the White House on down. So, so maybe someone at the White House will hear this. I know you can't send a package because it probably will never get to anyone by the time it's scanned and they think it's going to blow up or something. But maybe someone out there would like to use this song, okay? We gotta go green. We gotta go green, hold fast to the dream, it's a simple theme, we need to make this world clean, fix the air that we breathe, fix the land and the sea, alternatively, we've got to find a new scheme, a brand new Protect and preserve Sweet Mother Earth Invest in our children's future and worth It's worth it to create A world that's beautiful and green No more wrinkles at the end of a storm Ice caps will be melting In a world that's too warm Oceans and rivers Overflowing with rage Hear me, I pray Today is the day When we gotta go clean Hold fast to the dream a simple theme We need this world to be clean They see air that we breathe Fix the land and the sea Alternatively We've got to find a new scheme A brand new way Before it all disappears Leaving the next Generation with nothing but cheers in all good conscience. It's worth it to create a world that's beautiful and green. No more flowers or birds fly 
hunting down you, like they can email me at mgilbo.com oh, and I'll, you. I'll forward that request on to you. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you. So, with Appreciate that. it. And we do have to go green. Right. In one of these breaks, too, you told me I had to ask you about <laughs> Wuthering Heights and Appassionato. So, Far be it for me to tell you how to interview me. <laughs> I, I, none, of the, none of what I've been fed so far has gone astray. Yeah. Well, at least in terms of interest. Maybe the Stories have gone astray. Yeah, just, oh yeah, probably. Like a friend of mine said, don't you ever stop talking? I said, you just have to listen. I'll do both sides of the conversation. <laughs> uh, actually, yes, I have two things in the works. Uh, one score that is com- uh, almost complete called the Passionado, which is um, a Brazilian piece. Oh, God, it's so beautiful. Oh, my God. I, uh, really, I cannot tell you about the beauty of Brazilian music. If you've never gotten into it, you should. There is nothing sexier in fact, on the way here, I heard Robin, um, what's his name? You know. Um, uh, Ro- the, the white R&B singer, is that yeah, what you're talking about? The, uh, Robin Thicke. Robin Thicke, Alan Thicke's son, yes. Uh, playing um, the original single that made it for him. And it's a bossa nova feel. There's something just incredibly sexy. And once you get into it and you, you, you figure out the math of it, you understand what they're doing. And that's why it's so sexual, because they never let it go. Hello. Uh, <laughs> Um, it's a, it's about uh, deception, uh, seduction, seduction, deception, murder, uh, uh, un- seduction, seduction, deception, unexpected murder, and uh, death. It's a very light piece, <laughs> <laughs> but it's really, really beautiful. Apasionado, which is the most extreme word for uncontrollable love and attraction in the Portuguese language. Very beautiful story, very sensual, extraordinary. And then Wuthering Heights, which I've been trying to do for 10 years. And I think I finally found a brilliant book writer. I am the lyricist and composer on this. And that's my next project, actually. Apasionado is going to have to wait a little bit because of 
certain reasons in the business, but I, I just wanted to say that that's my next two things. All right. Well, Louis, hey, Louis, I thank you so oh, much. Oh, and for I'm also a music supervisor <laughs> on Josephine, the new Josephine Baker musical, which is being produced by Ken Weissman and by Steve Dorff and John Bettis. That is a beautiful project directed by Joey McNeely, who's on the boards right now with West Side Story. I like to tell about my friends. I'm so well connected in the indie. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Louis, watch out, Louis. Seth Rudesky. <laughs> Oh, and I have a like book. A... <laughs> I have a book. Oh, no, I must tell you about the book. Scene, yes. <laughs> I, my book, which I think I may soon have a deal for. I mean, I've got a publisher who says to me, that is a magic title. I parked too long in the diva zone. <laughs> yes, where I tell about 23 of the 35 Krispy Kremes for whom I've conducted. Thank There's got to be an audiobook for this, too. Yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, <laughs> thank you. It was great being here. All right, and people should also tune in to the first interview last episode. Please. Where we talked about Please. The Jesus Christ Superstar gospel, gospel. Which runs through February 22 in Atlanta at the Alliance Theater. Thank. Oh, and Susan Booth, the director of Jesus Christ Superstar Gospel, to whom I am helplessly devoted. I really am. Okay. All right, thanks. thanks. Best of luck with all your upcoming thank projects. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Top of the trades. Well, Broadway World reports that it is now official. Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark will open on Thursday, February 18th, 2010 at Broadway's Hilton Theater. Directed by Tony Award winner Julie Taymor with 22-time Grammy Award winning Bono and The Edge creating new music and lyrics, Spider-Man will be written by Julie Taymor and Glenn Berger. And soon we'll all have the answer. Can Spider-Man sing as well as... Uh, so around Gotham. I have my doubts, but uh, we'll see. They're pumping about 35 million or more into it. Last week, we mentioned that Next to Normal, the acclaimed new musical, had been announced to play the Long Acre Theater, but it's now going to make its home at the Booth Theater. They said they wanted a smaller theater, and uh, one became available when the story of my life closed. Previews will begin as originally scheduled on March 27th, with an opening on April 15th. Ken Davenport and his production team proudly announced that Alter Boys, the acclaimed musical comedy at New World Stages, will celebrate its fourth anniversary on Sunday, March 1st. Alter Boys opened to acclaim on March 1st, 2005, and recently recouped its investment, making it the first off-Broadway commercial book musical to recoup in years. Capitalized at $1 million, Alter Boys received unanimous raves, going on to garner seven Drama Desk nominations and winning the Outer Critics Circle Award for Best Musical Off-Broadway. Curtain call. And as we just hinted about here earlier, The Story of My Life, the intimate two-actor musical about the contours of a lifelong friendship and its sudden ending, experienced a sudden ending of its own, playing its last performance on Broadway February 22nd. Most New York City critics were not won over by the small, some said mundane musical. The Associated Press praised the piece. Roma Tori, a critic on the local New York One channel, praised the show but questioned whether it belonged in a big theater. The booth is one of Broadway's smallest houses. Regional audiences in Connecticut embraced the show in a developmental run by Goodspeed Musicals last fall. Perhaps we haven't seen the end of the show in regional productions yet to come. Sorry to see you go. Story of my life. Well, that wraps up Volume 306. If you have any further informational needs about anything we had in this program, you can check out the show notes at broadwaybullet.com. Also, make sure to get down to our weekly open mic starting this Sunday, March 1st. It's at 8 p.m. You can find out all the great information on our website. It's the top right-hand side, open mic link. And, uh, again, it's for uh, musical theater composers and singers of all sorts. Uh, we really want to create a platform for exposing some of the new music 
music and letting some of the composers and singers that are on their way up to meet each other. Because, you know, that's the best way to get in with a new composer is early on, not at auditions for their Broadway musical. Well, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and thanks for hopping on board for Volume 306. I will see you next week. arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And, if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, Go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.